This episode of The Candor Frame is supported by Fujifilm's new integration with Frame.io Camera to Cloud. A new integration between Fujifilm and Frame.io allows transferring images or video to the web directly from your Fujifilm camera using C2C technology. Find out more by visiting fujifilm-x.com and click Camera to Cloud. We also have the support of Nikon, whose latest camera is the Z8, a mirrorless camera that provides a small but powerful tool for any genre of photography or video. With its 45.7 megapixel sensor and up to 8K 60p video recording capability, the Z8 provides the means to unleash your creativity. Find out more by visiting NikonUSA.com forward slash podcast Z8. Do you know your neighbors? Do you know their names and their stories? Do you interact with more than just the uh, occasional wave? Or are you lucky enough to consider some of them as friends? Photographer James Payne's curiosity about his neighbors led to a photo project that began during the 70s in Southern Illinois. He began with portraits of families living on campus housing at the college he attended. In the decades since, he has produced intimate, 3D environmental portraits that reflect people, styles, and cultural aesthetics across decades. The results are an amazing visual time capsule for how people live in their personal spaces and what it reveals about them and us. This is Ibarian X, and welcome back to The Candid Frame. So how have things been? Oh, all, all in all, I'm actually pretty pretty happy with a number of things that are going on uh, for me photographically, and um, it's largely that a lot of people have suddenly volunteered to do things to help promote my work to gain it a larger audience. So um, I have somebody volunteered to pay for creating a uh, VR version. That'll look oh. a lot like my studio used to look when I lived at the brewery. Okay. So you will pick up and put on the headset. You will see all my viewers hanging in the studio. And you'll be able to reach out and pick them up and view them in 3D and hear me tell stories about them and everything else. Oh, that's oh, that should be great. Yeah, and they're funding it all um, with an eventual payback through anything it earns. Not that I expect it to be a bestseller, uh, but at least it will be something I can carry into remote museums to let them get a sense of what the experience is. Yeah. Well, I, I have no doubt that there are going to be a lot of fans uh, well, of the work once they, once they have the chance to see them, because it it, it blew me away on, on so many different levels. Oh, um, well, thank I you. Just, I just love discovering it. and. You know, I'm glad that we could finally sit down and, and, and have you on the show. Yeah. Well, thank you for that. Yeah, I was looking through the um, last couple of days. I've been looking at the, the photographs as you have them on, on the website, which mm -hmm. don't really provide the, f you know, the 3D experience that you provided when, when, when I first met you. But nevertheless, um, it, it's, it's such a rich treasure trove that you have. Not, not just in terms of photography, not just, in terms of, you know, documenting different periods in, in time, in terms of fashions and styles, 
but it was really interesting to see how people use their spaces. Mm -hmm. You know, how they lay claim to them or don't lay claim to them. Um, yes. It's, all, well, it's always fascinating. Yeah. Well, the whole origin of the project came when I was a college student and um, I had the uh, part-time job of being a building inspector for the Federal Housing Authority of an adult married student housing complex. So whenever they would have problems, oh, my oven broke or, you know, whatever their issue was, yeah. um, they would call and I would come and inspect it and then order whatever repairs or maintenance were required. So of course that gave me access to 300 and some apartments. And gradually over a year or so, I got to see probably at least half of them. And that's what struck me was, my God, these are all physically identical floor plans. The rules say you can't change the color of the walls, and yet they're so different. Every unit is so different. So I thought, well, if I just document that, well, that was fine for a few months. I graduated and was having a hard time showing the project to anybody because of the 3D aspect. And I was just going to throw it away, literally. Pulled all the slides out oh, of the viewing wow. mechanism, and I was headed across the garage of the place I lived with the intention of just dumping the slides in the trash can and being done with it. And as I walked across the garage, which fortunately was a two-car garage, so it gave me a few extra seconds to get to the trash can, <laughs> this little voice in the back of my head said, yeah, but if you did it for 40 years, it'd be a really interesting piece of Americana which wasn't a term that was even used back then, but yeah, the same idea. And uh, I stopped in the middle of the floor and I thought, wow, that would be interesting. And 40 years from now, they'll have solved that viewing problem, which of course isn't <laughs> true. But, <laughs> but now I have 46 years worth of the photos. And because the original premise was that I didn't direct or change anything in the spaces, because mm -hmm. I didn't consider that documentary if I, you know, said, oh, well, let's move this out of the way or let's move this into the photo. I just let people sit wherever they wanted. So I just continued that approach. So if you agreed to pose for me and I got to your house and you said, well, where should I sit? I'd say, oh, wherever you're comfortable. Well, what should I wear? Oh, whatever you feel comfortable in. I mean, I go out of my way to not influence their choices. Yeah. And I think that's what reveals who they are. Oh, yeah. Because you, you have everything imaginable in, in, in that archive in terms of yeah. how people, not just in terms of how people decorate their, their spaces, but also how they present themselves. Right. You know, some people really go out of their way to make sure that they're wearing you know, some really good fashionable clothes and right. other people chose not to wear anything at all. And then you right. have everything in between. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I've, I've had people look through the viewfinder and literally go pull things out of the trash and throw them on the floor. <laughs> and I'm just standing there like, what are you doing? You know, but I don't say that or I don't react that way. But internally I'm like, you know, what is your self image? that that's what they wanted to create. As, as interesting as looking at how the apartments are 
decorated and the kind of furniture and seeing things from 30 and 40 years ago that, you know, like the televisions and the couches. Right. You know, the, one of the fascinating things ab about it is how the people choose to sort of present themselves in these in these photographs and like you, you said you know you don't you don't direct them you allow them to do anything that they want um was that sort of just an i know you said you you wanted it to be documentary and that was like the impetus to basically have them direct themselves but what other advantage did that give you in terms of what you were able to to create well, it certainly, again, these are all people I know. I don't photograph anybody that's a complete stranger. They don't have to be people that are necessarily my best friend. But if mm -hmm. you're in a neighboring apartment and you're somebody that I talk to or maybe have a glass of wine with or whatever, um, and there's some sense of affinity and values, then eventually I'll ask you if you'd like to participate, you know. Um, it leads to my getting to know people much better. There's a picture going back, I believe it's Chicago, 1979, and it's a woman in her attic standing near a window, and she's got a long skirt on, and she's at a ballet bar, B-A-R-R-E. I knew her as a professor of poetry at the Art Institute of Chicago. She taught the poetry of John Keats. And when I asked her if I could photograph her, she said, oh, yes, you know, my husband and I would like that. So I drove down to their home, which was in Hyde Park in Chicago. And he was also a professor of poetry, William Butler Yeats, uh, at the University of Chicago. So they took me into their den, and there's the tall stacks of books and the two brown leather armchairs and the reading lamps over the shoulder. And I was like, oh, this is going to be so great. So I photographed the two of them sitting in their chairs and standing behind their chairs. And, you know, again, I thought we were done. And I said, well, thank you, Carol. And she said, would, would you do one more? I said, well, sure. You know, what would you like? And she said, would you do one of me at the bar? And I'm like, at the bar? I'm like, well, sure. But in my head, I'm imagining, you know, bottles of liquor. and Yeah. And I'm like... That's an odd request, but, but okay. You know. <laughs> so, you know, we start to move to a different room, and she says, you're going to have to carry your stuff up the ladder. And now I'm really confused. So we get to this ladder going up into the attic. And I'm like, okay, well, let me go up and look before I carry all the lights and equipment up. And uh, so I carry just the camera and tripod, and I go up the ladder. And there's this empty attic with this little metal practice bar for ballet and I'm like oh now I get it <laughs> and so she strikes this pose at point in this long skirt and long sleeve sweater and I said Carol you know I, I didn't know you had an interest in ballet and she looked at me like I was less than intelligent and she said I escaped Russia I danced for the ballet Russe I escaped with Nuryev Oh, wow. And I was like, how did I not know this? 
So a lot of these are adventures for me because people are willing to talk if you present an interest and if you present comfort so they will pose in a natural way. Mm-hmm. And then I also, of course, always give them the option that when the film comes back, they can look through it all. And if there's a pose or an image they don't like, they consider unflattering, I will give them the original transparencies so I can't show it. And I don't, anything they leave with me, I have permission to use. That's the agreement. Yeah. And therefore, they're comfortable with whatever I show. And I wind up, you know, having to select between the two of them in their den, which is a really interesting picture, or the one that's really to her heart, which was the one of her in the attic. Plus, it's such a dramatic shot because of the shape of the attic and the dimensionality of that image in 3D is striking. You know, from the very beginning... You knew that you wanted to do it as a three-dimensional. Well, actually, the project... No. Actually, the project started in black and white, two-dimensional. Okay. And I had the... uh, A very funny encounter. I went to an SBE conference in Ohio in 1970, whatever year it was, six or seven. And the guest speaker was a gentleman named Bruce Davidson. I'm sure you know. And when I was in the lobby with my portfolio under my arm of the hotel, this woman came up to me and said, I'll show you mine if you show me yours. And she kind of giggled. And so we both went looking for somewhere to show our portfolios. And we were sitting out of the way in a hallway so that we wouldn't be in the middle of the lobby with hundreds of photographers going through. And uh, people got off the elevator to go to their rooms. They were sitting down and joining us. And eventually some gentleman got off the elevator and sat next to me and asked if he could look. And he went through my color work. And then he went through the box of 2D black and white images that was the beginning of this project. And he said to me, these prints suck. (laughs) (laughs) And I said, I said, well, yeah, black and white is a foreign language to me because it always has been something I struggled with. It's not a natural medium for me. And he said, go back and reshoot these people in color. And I said, oh, that's an interesting idea. So, you know, eventually we all dissipated from the hallway. That night, of course, he's the guy that showed up behind the podium. So the minute I realized it was Bruce Davidson that had recommended that to me, I thought, I will go back and reshoot these people in color. So as I went out the door to do so, I passed my little 3D rig that I had built with no subject in mind for it, but it was another class I was taking, an experimental camera. And I thought, well, what if I shot them in 3D? If it doesn't look good in 3D when it comes back, I'll just use it as a color image. And if it does look good, I can turn this portfolio into two classes which is what I did. Same professor for both classes, so I didn't feel like I was cheating. Um, (laughs) And the first image came back, which was the Chinese couple, number one image in the project. And when I looked at it through a viewer, I felt like I was in the room with them. And I thought, well, there you go. This is what I'm supposed to do. 
describe what this this thing is, what well, these things are for it, people. Uh, I wish I wish I had it here. Um, well, it it's is, an audio podcast, so unfortunately, yeah, most people yeah. are just well, going to have two, to use their it's imagination. It's a two by ten inch um, piece of plywood, and I put a tripod thread in the center of it. It's, you know, five inches between, and I put a little tiny wooden lip on the back of it. And so when you put it, when you mount it on the tripod, it's a flat piece of wood with a little lip on the back. And I drew two lines, two and a half inches apart. So when I place the camera on it, it's plano parallel on the bottom and it's plano parallel on the back. So I can line it up and ask you to hold still, take the first photograph, click, slide it over two and a half inches, click. When the slides come back, you drop them in the viewer because those two slides are now taken from two and a half inches apart, which is the approximate distance between your eyes. And your the brain. viewers themselves, describe those because that's how I, that's how I got, <laughs> yeah. got the um, chance The viewers are uh, made by a company called Pinsharp, and it's one of, I mean, there are hundreds of viewers out on the market but each has their own advantages and disadvantages. For transparencies, these viewers are really perfectly sized and they have a large amount of magnification. I think it's eight times. And that combination and the fact that it's a plastic flexible viewer allows somebody whose eyes are a little narrower or a little wider to adjust the distance between the eyes on the viewer so that it's very easy for it to snap into view in 3D. And I just have to drop the left side on the left eye piece, the right side on the right eye piece, and your brain fuses them back together automatically, like it does as if you were in the room. I um, I work at the Huntington Library. I'm mm -hmm. one of the uh, digital archivists there. And a couple of months ago, I had the chance to photograph a variety of daguerreotypes. Ah. And one of them was a 3D daguerreotype. Wow. They had I've never two seen daguerreotypes, and then I hadn't. I didn't even know they existed back yeah. then. But yeah, they they probably you know did something similar to you, except they were working with you know daguerreotypes, right? And well, they I had a little collapsible viewer, and they could take a look at it. Yeah, and so it, it had was, to be adjusted for the width of that daguerreotype. Right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, the theory of three D photography was published in eighteen thirty two by an English optometrist. Uh, photography did not exist yet. And he published a paper about oh, how you could do it in really? 3D. And so a few years later, because it was, what, 1837 when Fox Talbot or, mm -hmm. uh, and Daguerre and all those people were coming up with processes to fix an image. Um, but the film was still too slow to shoot 3D. So that didn't start happening until the 1850s when it became very popular. I don't know how they did a, a daguerreotype, but I'd be curious to learn about that one. Yeah, yeah, it's just really fascinating. It's the only one that I that I photographed that was like that. Yeah. Um, I, I think the one of the um, the curators told me that it was a patented patented technology yeah. that, may, that may or may not have taken off. Right. Um, so, but uh, for you, you're shooting. Chrome on these. I was up until a few years ago. I've just switched to digital, and the only really? reason. I, okay. Yeah, the only reason I did that is because uh, with the well, first of all, you know, Kodak stopped making Kodachrome 
originally I was shooting this on tungsten Kodachrome, which most people have never even heard of, but it existed back in the 60s and 70s. Yeah. And um, they stopped making it probably five years into the project. So I switched to uh, Ektachrome tungsten and uh, then Fuji tungsten. And then they stopped making both of those. So then I was shooting Ektachrome or Fuji chrome with color filtration to try to fix it, which made them even slower. And, uh, you know, it just became an ever harder <laughs> process. And then as everything started to go digital, you have to realize at this point, some of my earliest images are mildewing and fading. Those old transparencies. Mm. Yeah. So I'm trying to get everything into a digital format that'll preserve before that becomes too damaging. Um, so that meant that at a cost of drum scanning two images for every person, uh, that's $100 a pop to digitize them. And then because I show them as slides, that means I have to re-image them as slides. Yeah. So I thought, why don't I just shoot them digital and then image them as slides? And that way I don't have to scan and clean up and correct all the original transparencies. I'll have the digital files for archives anyway. So I'm in the process of scanning all of it and photoshopping it and realigning it so i'll have it in both formats i've spoken to a lot of people who have worked on long-term projects but i i don't i can't think of anybody who outdoes you uh in terms of the amount of time dedicated to it and just speaking for myself when i'm working on projects uh, that are much shorter mm -hmm that sometimes it can be a struggle to sort of kind of sustain the momentum and, and, and keep and keep doing it and, and see it to completion. When you're doing something for 40 plus years, that must come up multiple times. So how did you well, sort of continue yeah, that? Yeah, well, there's, uh, I, have to, I have to give you a little more back history here. Um, <clears throat> when I was three years old, I was diagnosed with type 1 diabetes. This was in the 1950s. And of course, one of the complications of type 1 diabetes is retinopathy, which leads to blindness. In those days, the tools to manage diabetes were so limited that the average expectation for blindness was 12 years from onset. So I would have been 15. Um, on top of that, life expectancy was less than 20 years. So I was told from the time I was about five years old that I would never live to see 21. This was my doctors telling my parents and my parents telling me. And so my expectation was I wasn't going to live very long. I wasn't going to get to do very much. So mm -hmm. I did not exactly prioritize being a highly disciplined student with long-term planning for college degrees and careers. I was out to see as much as I could as fast as I could. So I would get off the bus at the school every day and everyone would go in and I would go around the corner and hitchhike to the train station with a dollar I'd stolen out of my mom's purse. And I would go down to downtown Chicago and hang out at the Art Institute, hang out in Old Town outside the strip clubs and jazz joints 
and I would stay there until it was time to get back on the train and get back on the bus and go home. And that's how I spent my youth. I also happened to be a clerk in a liquor store, and so I had lots of things to amuse myself with. (laughs) And I was just partying hard because I thought, there's no hope for me anyway. Um, So when I turned 21, I was still alive and still could see. And when I turned 23, they diagnosed me with retinopathy and told me I had six months till I would go blind. I went home feeling less than joyous about life. And two days later, got a call from the state of Illinois Department of Vocational Rehabilitation. And they said, oh, we hear you're going blind. So you're going to need a job after you do. So tell us what you want to study. We'll send you to any college in the state of Illinois, and we'll pay for it all. We'll pay for your housing, your food, your tuition, and all your materials. And I thought, oh, I can finally study photography. (laughs) Now, you would expect them to hit the tilt button at that point, but they Mm -hmm. didn't. So I enrolled. A year later, I was not blind. I was a student at Southern Illinois University in the cinema and photography department. So, for me to choose to do a 40-year project was as ludicrous as you could get. (laughs) It was me flying in the face of everybody telling me there was no way. Yeah. So, the eyes did hold out fine until 1991 when I did go blind in my left eye. And I lost that vision completely. And my right eye was reduced to a small tunnel of vision. I could see this little circle in the middle, but I had Mm. no peripheral vision. So seeing as I was an animation cameraman at that point in my career, um, (laughs) I was finally facing the uh, reality check that I should have expected. Um, You will not see if you go through the inventory of my images. I think there's one 3D photo from 91 or maybe it's one in 90 and none in 91 or anyway in three years there's two photos because needless to say i couldn't see in 2d very well much less in 3d and i did not foresee that ever coming back into motion i thought well i didn't get to 40 years i've only got 15 oh well okay two years later i had vision in both eyes. They were 2025, uh, 27 eye surgeries later, um, and a very helpful specialist. I had full vision again, although I don't see in 3D very well. I never got the full 3D thing back. Wow. But I knew how to make 3D images by then. So my production picked up months after I got my vision back, and I've been chugging along ever since. There's, a, there's another small hole during the pandemic where there's only yeah. a few images because who was going to let me in their house? <laughs> you know, nobody. So, Did, so there's, uh, a, there's a couple holes in the project. But that defiance, that's just part of my nature. Mm-hmm. It's just, it's how I work. Today's photographer buys a camera to do more than just one thing. 
A wedding photographer also creates landscapes. A portrait photographer loves wildlife. A street photographer shoots video. They need a camera that delivers on all counts, and the Nikon Z8 is just such a camera. Nikon Z8 features a 45.7 megapixel full-frame sensor that delivers rich detail and beautiful color. It features blistering fast and accurate autofocus, featuring subject detection developed with deep learning technology. It features internal 8K video at 60p, as well as the ability to produce 120p at 4K. It's a compact and versatile camera that's designed with ergonomics that make it a pleasure to handle and use. It's pro-grade construction, features an eco-friendly carbon fiber chassis, premium weather sealing, a sensor shield, and dual card slots. So you'll enjoy a camera that delivers even under the harshest of conditions. Find out more about the Z8 and how it can make a difference in your photography by visiting NikonUSA.com forward slash podcast Z8. I can't help but think that the sort of dire prediction of your lifespan and the and the assumed brevity of it was a tremendous gift. You know, I've always felt that way. Yeah. Yeah. Because I, I was hearing a conversation and I think, and they were sort of talking about, you know, people deriving satisfaction from their lives, especially, you know, doing things that they aren't, that aren't particularly fulfilling and sort of things sort of dragging out. And one of the statements the person made is that, you know, that people, you know, don't think that they will die. You know, that they sort of deny the reality that their, their time here on this earth is finite. Yeah. And and un- until you sort of accept the fact that it is finite. Oh yeah. You don't know how long that you have. Then the 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 decision to spend it doing things that you don't want to do, mm-hmm. being with people you really don't want to be around and all you know all those things right. that we kind yes. of sort of accept become the reality. But when right. you realize that when, if you really are realistic about that and accept that and embrace it and not be in fear of it that it can be very liberating and i think that your story is a really good good example of it and and despite the prediction you've got to enjoy an incredible creative life right and i think that because it was the eyes that were most threatened from the beginning that's why i wanted to do anything visual that i had ever wanted yeah. to do and and so it became plus to me there's a, there's a certain magic to photography when you treat it as a honest capture that's that's my opinion i'm not saying that other forms of photography aren't wonderful because i see mm-hmm. photographers doing things that are highly manipulative and you know highly mixed with other mediums and and they're beautiful but for me, the magic is when you look at something and it's a straight image, there's this like nanosecond of time that was captured and space. And there's something magical about that. And so when I decided to do it for the 40 years, which was <clears throat> literally a number that just came out of the air when I was standing in the garage that day, I don't know why I didn't say 30 or 50 but 40 was Mm -hmm. the number and then of course 
two years later, I was like, what are you, nuts? You're never going to do this for 40 years, you know? And then I got to like five years, and I'm like, well, you know, maybe. And I got to 10 years, and I was like, well, this is doable, you know? And, you know, you start to gain momentum, and it's like, I had done it for 23 years and never shown it to anybody. I had the f- film would come back and I would put it in a bank vault. It was at a uh, Security Pacific Bank, which later got bought by Bank of America and, yeah, <clears throat> in Long Beach. And the project was 23 years old. I would go shoot the film. It would come back. I'd go to the bank, open the box and put in more. But I never looked at what was coming back. And I decided to move to the brewery art complex because a friend of mine lived there and he let me know there was an open place I could get in. And uh, so I moved in. And while I was driving home one day, I thought, I wonder what those slides look like. (laughs) You know, 23 years worth of work. And I stopped by the bank with no box to put them in or anything. I got convinced the tellers to give me some coin bags and I'm stuffing mm-hmm. all these square boxes and these canvas bags and I'm putting them all in the trunk of my car. And then I drove home. I didn't have a light box. So I had to go <laughs> borrow a light box from a friend. <laughs> and I started laying these images out. And I was like, I couldn't do it for more than an hour a day because, oh, there's my grandfather who's now dead. And, oh, there's my mom in the house I grew up in. And, oh, there's my first wife and my stepkids that I was since divorced from. And, oh, there's so-and-so who died. And, Mm. oh, there's that guy at work who stabbed me in the back later and got me fired. And, oh, you know. And it's like so much emotional drama for me in all these images. And I had to edit them and get them into. And then I thought, now what am I going to do with them? And I thought, I'll hang them on a show at the brewery for an art walk. And if people like them, I'll keep going. And if they don't, I'll just throw them away. So I was back to another, am I going to throw it all away again moment? (laughs) And uh, I had people lined up out the door looking at those viewers. Wow. And I thought, well, the good news is they like it. The bad news is... Now I got to do it for another twenty years. <laughs> so it's been another twenty-three years since then. So it's forty-six years total now. Having had the chance to observe people in their spaces in this way for so long, what have you learned about how people use the use their living spaces? Well, conscious or not. It's a reflection of who they are. Because some people are very conscious about how they present themselves. You know, they would never let somebody in if the place wasn't perfectly cleaned and dusted and they don't worry about what's on their bookshelf or whatever. It's very, you know, I I largely come from a family like that. But there are two of us in the family who somehow didn't get that gene. Mm-hmm. And so we both live buried under books and albums and you know I buy photos from other photographers and I lose them in my house I don't know where they went you know (laughs) but I know they're here somewhere Um, you know it's just a very different lifestyle 
Um, and if you walked in, you would know a lot about me. You'd be able to tell all that instantly just from the books and my bookcase, mm. you know. And that's that's the part that I enjoy. And that's why I sometimes get shocked when I walk in. If you were scrolling through all those images on my website, somewhere early in that mix is one that you probably noticed because it's four people in a dining room and the father's on a massage table in a Speedo with a bottle of oil yeah. next to him. And the mother's at her sewing machine, the son's at his Apple IIe computer, and the other daughter has her Miss Piggy doll. And so I had told Nick, who is the another animation cameraman I worked with, you know, the rules are do whatever you want, show me who you are. Normally, if you say that to somebody that's a parent with a family, they'll all be posed on the couch together or they'll be out in the backyard at the barbecue, whatever they think yeah. represents them. This family gave me four separate portraits in one photo. Oh, that that is that's a showstopper that image yeah yeah because <laughs> you, you just, just go like, what the hell is going on and of course i only knew this guy as um an animation cameraman so i could have never predicted what his house would look like or what his mm -hmm. family was like so i walk out of these places sometimes and i get in my car and i just make sure the windows are rolled up because i laugh so hard and other times yeah. I'm just like dumbfounded. I'm depressed because of what I saw and what it reveals about somebody I know and feel some affinity for. Mm -hmm. So that to me is a lot of times as interesting as the photos is just what I learned about them as people. Yeah, you know, this is not a project for people who doesn't like people. You know, oh, no, no. You know, one of the things that's really kind of interesting to me and what it gave rise to is this idea of who is the space decorated for? How is the space laid out for? And there's some where you feel like people are really spending a lot of time making the place sort of look pristine and nice, mm -hmm. nice furniture, things and so on. And the idea for me is like that this is sort of representation of how they want to be perceived. Correct. Right. That they're going to have people over and they're going to appreciate all these things. Mm -hmm. And there are other people that it looks like a place is like, there's no, no one who ever comes here. Right. Right. Yep. And it, that was sort of a real, sort of a, sort of a fascinating thing to see that, that that mindset really informs the, the spaces as much as any sort of aesthetic preference, preferences or interests that, that people have. Mm -hmm. That some people see their spaces as basically as, you know, um, a showcase, while others just see it as their own personal oasis, their escape from everything else. Yes. I, I tend to belong to that latter category. I've been <laughs> in this whole, I live in a back house in Altadena, and um, I've been living here since 2017. I've had one guest, mm. and that's because they invited themselves. They, they had a feeling that I needed to have somebody care about the status of my life. And so she asked if she could come over and see the place. Oh, sure, you know, come on in. But 
I've never invited anybody here. Hmm. I go out. I go to other places. Of course, I have boxes of 3D transparencies that need to be scanned, stacked all over the place. And of course, I have scanners and monitors and computers and you know tripods and lighting equipment. You know, because that's my life. That's what I do. So that's what I'm surrounded by. Yeah, I've the space that I'm in is a garage that we converted into a basically into an office space for me. And uh, this is the first time probably since my first apartment out of college where I can kind of do anything with it. Mm -hmm. But like my apartment after college, I didn't do anything with it. I had a bed, I had a couch, I had a dining table. But in right. terms of, you know, making it my own, I never did anything with it. And even with the space now, I'm at a loss as to how I make it my own. I have no interest in putting up my own photographs in this space. <laughs> you know, right. I just that just that's not kind of what I want. I mean, I've got this wall-length bookshelf that I got put in, which I'm very happy about because I didn't have any space for all my monographs. But in yeah. terms of how do I sort of make this my own, you know, it doesn't come naturally to me. Yeah. And I had a friend, uh, I have a friend, Marco Torres, um, and I met him uh, when we were living in a co-op uh, in Berkeley. And his room and the one he shared with his roommate, you knew this was his space. Even his right. house today, you walk into it and he has so many things that, that speak to his Mexican heritage, his love of art and, and color. And you walk, it's like you walk throughout that house, even his kitchen, you know, the tiles that make up the, the kitchen counter, all of it is so much him. And, yeah. and I think, you know, and when I was looking through some of the photographs, I was looking to see how much of that was present and how much was it stuff that people bought that was of the time, mm -hmm. you know, that, oh, this was the kind of table that you would get during this period, or this is the kind of chair oh, or the kind of television. You see that, right? Yeah. And it's kind of really interesting to see how, how people are sort of choose to make a space their own, but not necessarily m making the space using things that are intrinsically about them, but things that they have been, they've come to learn that, oh, this is nice stuff that you should have. Right, correct. In your space. Yeah. Well, if you if you go back through the project, you know, start at the beginning of 1976, and you will see that there is a transition as you move forward to current state and you go through the cinder blocks and plywood shelves for books before mm -hmm. that's in the 70s. And then as you get to the 80s, it's more finished furniture. It's more modernist because everything became minimalism and all that hippie paraphernalia of macrame went away and it became all the furniture was gray, black or red and it was very lean and minimalist. And then you get into the 90s and it becomes the age of Ikea. And the furniture starts to take on that mm -hmm. assembled out of the box look. And you, you can just watch those trends. 
the shag carpets are gone by the 80s they're there yeah. in the 70s oh i noticed the carpets <laughs> yeah yeah and um so it's it's just we don't even realize as we live our lives that we adapt and change with the times although not always as fast you know if you walked into my house there's no macrame anywhere but there's mm. still things that look like they're from my age group yeah you know? i had a fantasy a couple of weeks ago i said man if i if i came into a whole lot of money i mean just crazy crazy money i said i was thinking man i would get a an apartment like in a high rise with a great view and i would tell the designer make it look like it's 1973 <laughs> <laughs> orange right. you know all that all that yeah. yellow to, and the kitchen would be you know, avocado avocado right, the, yeah. the clocks with the spikes right. it's just like just just take me back to my childhood i don't care how much it costs just make it right. so so i walk in here and i don't want anything modern in there yeah <laughs> it's funny i always i always think that if i had a fantasy place it would be like one of those modern japanese places where when you walk in there's no furniture there's just one little bench along the wall yeah and it would be empty nothing hanging anywhere just as minimal as could be and i don't know if you've ever seen those places because when oh, yeah. you lift I've seen them. the bench out comes the table and the chairs and it's all stored in that one bench along the one wall and it's all you know it just like folds out from it's amazing stuff architecture but yeah and i'm seeing so much now with people having to live in spaces like 500 square feet and smaller you're seeing all these innovative ways that people are leveraging leveraging the space they're constructing right. these things not just murphy beds but murphy beds that when they fold up reveal the couch and that's also can be the the work desk and yeah. and it's like <laughs> maximizing the space so that people can you know um live right within a limited degree of space which is you still have to get rid of all the stuff all the stuff that's my problem is you know i was a student in 1976 and i've got the notebook from chuck swedland's classes with my notes in it oh wow <laughs> and i've got dave gilmore's stuff and you know i patrillo's stuff you know because those are the guys i studied under and so you know you keep that stuff because it's personally important to you the only photographs i have hanging in my home i've got bill brewer's image off to the right there and he's a photographer at the brewery i don't know if you're familiar with him but does a lot of desert landscape stuff and i've got a couple of swedland's images behind me um none of my work hanging anywhere um mm -hmm. but all the real artwork that is that i've collected over the years are you know lithographs and paintings by Mexican Byron Galvez and um, I've got a Picasso lithograph that's an original and uh, you know it's all like got blankets wrapped around it and they're all stacked in a corner because yeah. I <laughs> it's like I don't know it's it's just I never get around to hanging that stuff Did, have, have you seen or have you noticed any sort of change in terms of how people respond to the project you know, well, in from the when you first started people, to now yeah in the beginning people 
you know, it just sounded like a, a cute little project and people were happy to participate and didn't give it a second thought. Um, when it was at midpoint, people were still pretty casual about it. If I ask people to pose now, they get terrified because of the scale of the project and the fact that it has generated interest from some museums and mm -hmm. you know it's, it's starting to gain visibility. People are now aware that they could wind up captured by history and visible for a long time to come. So they've oh, become wow. very self-conscious. The casualness so, has gone away. Oh, that's what you're noticing in the photographs. Huh? Yeah. Yeah, they're much more aware. Because most of them, they've known me a long time. They've been right. through art walks and they've seen, you know, seen the project innumerable times. And they have already participated in it or are helping me in some way find it a home. Uh, the, the person who volunteered to create a virtual reality um, product for me um, asked if he could be in the project. That's that's what he wants is his reward for doing that. And I'm like, good Lord, you could have been in it. <laughs> he didn't have to do that. You know? um, have people that you've made photographs come back to it years later, having forgotten Some, about it and all of a sudden they see they see it again and yeah well here's a and again funny stories an image in oak park illinois 1979 um a couple in their living room with a lot of light coming in through the windows and she's standing in hip waders with uh, a net and you know she looks like she's about to go fishing and he's sitting in a rocking chair wearing a mcdonald's quarter pounder t-shirt so he was a very good friend of mine. I worked with him a lot. We have a lot of funny history. And she was his wife. And she had just graduated like the week before from the University of Illinois, Chicago Circle Campus with a degree in marine biology. So when I asked them to pose and told them to show me who they were, she came out in all that gear to show who she was because she'd just gotten mm -hmm. her degree. And he looked at her and he went, Oh shit. Oh shit. <laughs> and he went, he's like looking really nervous. And then he goes, Oh, mm -hmm. and he runs in the other room and he comes back with the McDonald's quarter pounder t-shirt. And he says, I was the manager of the restaurant when they introduced this. <laughs> so who, do, who knows how old that t-shirt was. Wow. But he proudly posed next door. And he's another one who looked through the camera because he's a photographer. Mm -hmm. And he said, oh, this isn't true. And he went and got newspapers and moved them into the camera frame on the floor. He put an empty coffee cup on the rug. He moved some albums in on the right side of the image to show the music they liked. So he kind of consciously composed all that. But he had no control over what his wife did, which inspired him to get the T-shirt. So it's yeah. a really funny image. It's like another one that makes no sense. As we select and interview our final guest for this season, it's our hope that the conversations we've shared have both entertained and inspired you. 
There are a lot of photo podcasts you can choose from, but I hope that this one provides you something that others don't. Hundreds of examples that you too can enjoy a creative life revolving around photography. If there is any one takeaway from this show, it's that there is no singular way to make that happen. You can create your own unique path, just as so many guests of this show have proven. That's what the show is for me, and hopefully it is for you too. And if it is, why not take the time to support The Candid Frame financially? Your modest donation helps go a long way in helping us to produce the show after 16 years and 600 episodes. You can contribute $5, $10, $20 or more a month by visiting patreon.com forward slash The Candid Frame. By doing so, you help us to produce a show dedicated to great and insightful conversations about what it means to be a photographer and lead a creative life. Again, it's patreon.com forward slash The Candid Frame. Thank you. When I look at my family uh, photographs, especially images made of uh, in the house, um, I love uh, being reminded of what the spaces look like. My one regret, though, is that um, we lived in a small two-bedroom, sort of not a craftsman, but along those along those lines, two-bedroom house. And uh, at the time, we we're four boys in one room in bunk beds. But one of the things we had a lot of pride in was that my dad was a pressman, so he made posters. Mm -hmm. So all those early 70s, late 60s posters, you know, the psychedelic posters and all those things. Oh, wow. Uh, they decorated the walls and the ceiling, and we had a black light. And just oh, wow. and anytime someone came to visit, we would take him in a room, and they'd be just in awe of, sure. of just wall-to-wall ceiling filled with posters and then we turn on the black light and right. just phenomenal but there's not a single photograph of that space yeah and the posters you know, are probably all gone too yeah yeah, yeah. I, yeah. I periodically i've seen uh posters from that era around um yeah. but i remember when it, when one sort of source of pride is i was watching the brady bunch and uh one of the posters that was in my room was <laughs> on the wall of, I think, the boys' room. And I was like, I got that poster in my That's room. That's right. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't have a lot from my youth of that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. um, you know, there's, there's, I've got boxes full of photos that when my mother passed away, I was the only child that chose to keep them. My siblings were just not interested in the hassle of trying to sort all that out. Um, so I chose to keep it all, but there's, there's not much that really reminds me of my youth. It's mostly yeah. stuff from my parents and prior. So, and they're all historically interesting, but unfortunately I don't know who's who in the pictures. You know, they weren't identified as this is your great aunt or whatever. Yeah. Well, you're increasingly putting this work out there, um, and of course, just because of the nature of the medium and how you're using it, there's some challenges in, in involved with that. Yes. Um, talk to me about, you know, increasingly putting your work out there and, you know, and what that looks like for you. Well, that that has been the challenge. You know, my presumption 
45 years ago was that that technology for 3D would, you know, solve itself. And while there are 3D TVs and there are various systems, they're not a, still not a mass distribution system. Not that many people have them. There isn't a lot of great content, so it doesn't drive the acquisition of the equipment to view it. And that problem has continued um, through my entire duration of the project. So from the beginning, I realized that as much as photography and things are considered an art and are legitimately an art, um, this project is really not an art project. It's a, it's a social documentary. And it's not one with an intention like Lewis Hine or someone who is trying to make a statement about some aspect of society that needed attention. Mine was just the idea that if I photographed whoever I came into connection with, and I started in my 20s, because that's when I came up with the idea, that I would wind up by the time I was 65 with a 40-year project and I would be retired, and it would be a nice little slice of American history. Um, in my mind, I would continue to photograph people that were my age. So as the project progressed, they'd be a steady um, aging of my peer group. And I also presumed, like most American dreams, that I would gradually have a nice, nicer lifestyle, and that would be reflected in the accoutrements of people's homes and unfortunately none of that is what actually happened because I still have mostly younger friends um, I don't tend to hang around with a lot of people my age or associate with them um, and I have not had a steady improvement of my financial well-being in the world because I've chosen to do things that aren't likely to produce that. <laughs> so uh, instead, I've just kind of continued to focus on my creative output and on raising my children and being a good parent and, you know, things that are not necessarily financially rewarding. Um, so I fulfill myself in other ways. So as the project has gone on, I ever more, you know, I called the Getty, cold called them one day and said, you know, you should look at my work. And somehow got an appointment with the head curators at the photo department and they refused to see the project in 3D. They wanted to see it in 2D. Um, so I showed them prints in chronological order and then while they were looking at the prints, open the box with the 3D viewers of the same images and let them discover that I had defied their instructions. <laughs> and they told me afterwards that I should never show it in 2D. Um, <laughs> so, um, you know, I've maintained a good relationship with them, but the Getty mm. is not a place that buys negatives and stores originals and they buy prints. They're dedicated as an educational institution. They do a lot of really great work and they have a great collection, 
but it's not the right home for my project anyway. And mm-hmm. they told me that at the very beginning. But they continue to talk to me and encourage me. Um, they agree with the opinion I offered even back then. I've been talking to them for over a decade. Um, that it really belongs somewhere like the Smithsonian or the National Portrait Gallery. Because it's really a piece of American yeah. history. And that's its greatest value. And so they continue to provide me the names of people at different facilities who are in positions to review it and consider it. Um, But I have not found it a permanent home yet. Um, Some of me thinks it belongs in L.A. because a lot of the work has been done here. But the project started in southern Illinois, and it has images from Chicago and from, you know, I have a friend who moved to New York City, so I flew out and did his 3D portrait in his loft in the meatpacking district. And I have another friend who lives in San Francisco, so I flew to San Francisco and did two or three portraits of friends that I have that live up there. Mm. Um, You know, there's not any geographical boundary to it other than it's all been done within the United States, which is why I call it American Portraits. Because and you, yeah. And you're still shooting? Yes. Yeah. Every once in a while, I decide I'm done, and then I book twelve more appointments ago to start shooting again, <laughs> and that remotivates me to keep going. That's great. And I also make sure that I have that I get bookings at shows. I'll do the brewery art walk or I'll do the hive gallery or I'll, I'll mm-hmm. show it places who have appreciated the work because it gives me deadlines. And if I have a deadline, oh, I have to come up with some yeah. new images. I have to show them I'm still moving. So yeah, I use I that as a way to continue the project. Yeah. I'm, I'm, if I don't have a deadline, nothing gets done. Right. Yeah. So, I'm, so, so I, go ahead. Go ahead. No, go ahead I was please. just going to say I'm, I I motivate myself by trapping myself very consciously. Mm. I like that. And now the VR project has me thinking. Oh, you know, he wants to put 300 images out of the 400 I've shot because I told him that if if I was going to be a harsh judge, I don't think they're all equal. You know, there's there's some that, oh, yeah. I mean, in one sense they are, because even if somebody tells me they want to be photographed standing against a white wall, which tells me absolutely nothing about them and also mm-hmm. doesn't have any dimension to it, the fact that they made their choice is kind of interesting. Yeah, that's, and that's it does exactly tell me a lot about them. <laughs> that's exactly that's exactly what I thought because there are some where people did not either they chose to be outside or they barely showed anything in their space and right. that in itself was very telling of them exactly so mm-hmm. it's hard for me to be a curator of my own work and plus the duration of time I look at some of those images from the 70s and 80s and I don't feel like I took those pictures. To me, those are as good as, you know, Diane Arbus or other people because I'm so far away from those images now. Mm. Many of those people are no longer alive or I have no idea where they went. 
since I took that photo in 1977 that my personal attachment is not current enough so I can judge those images a little easier. It's the more recent ones that are hard to judge for me. Yeah. You know, what's what's interesting is that despite the span of time and that you changed, your eyesight changed, you know, your your sensibility may have changed, is that the, the work is consistent. You know, from the first shot to the last one that I see there. And and I think that's attributable, you know, to kind of the the vision that you had, the, the idea and that you stayed yeah. like really true to that. Well, there was a certain point where I had to consciously decide that I wasn't going to let that part of my work evolve vision-wise. Mm. I wasn't going to allow myself to start buying different equipment that would allow me to have people jumping in the air or to you know, Im- improve the lighting so much that you would notice it. Because I light all those images, but I light them so you can't tell I lit them. <laughs> That's the idea is I'm just raising okay. ambient light and not overpowering with the normal light that they have created so that it stays true to their environment. Oh. I have to be very careful not to, not to goof it up by becoming too fancy. And I've stayed with, I, I no longer am using a little piece of wood. I'm now using a metal device that my camera can't fall off of that a friend invented for me out of a door slide from his closet and he invented this little thing that moves exactly two and a half inches every time so it's safer for me equipment wise I don't drop my camera anymore Um, but other than that I'm still people still have to hold still I'm still shooting at a low ASA everything has remained consistent because it forces this continuity yeah well, I, I I love the work, and I'm so glad well, that you. I had the chance to discover it. Yeah. Well, my my last question is a question I ask each guest. I ask them to recommend another photographer for our listeners to discover and explore, and it can be anyone, someone you've long admired or someone you've recently discovered. So who would that one photographer be and why? Oh, boy. Um, that's a good one. Uh, there's so many. <laughs> I'm, I'm trying to. <laughs> Um, I'm going to pick a a contemporary that I know and his work is radically different than mine and uh, his name is Vern Evans and Vern does I I don't even know what I would call his style um, because he's a commercial photographer he gets hired to do a lot of things uh, although I have no idea who's paying him to do them but he has photographed Everybody from the Dalai Lama to punk rock bands in Texas. And his style is as versatile as you can imagine. But he somehow captures people in a way that is full of heart. Um, He can calm people and relax them and... Uh, he did the portrait I used for my own website uh, of me, um, which he did as a favor. Um, 
but far and away the best photograph anyone has ever taken of me. And um, he did it by basically making me forget that I was being photographed. You know, he just relaxed yeah. me and he's screwing around with lights and with his camera and he's joking and he's being casual and he's he's just making it look like we're just goofing around. And, you know, over 20 minutes got me to smile in a natural way, got me to kind of reveal who I am. So That's I great. would say Vern, Vern Evans. And he's, well, thank course, you for that. Yeah, he's got a website so you can find him. Yeah, well, we'll include it in the show notes. But okay, thank you so much. I really enjoyed having the chance to talk yep. with you and, and diving deep with you. Okay, thank you. Thanks to James for joining us. Learn more about his work by visiting jamespainphotography.com. And if you're a fan of our work, you can write reviews on whatever service you use to listen to podcasts and share a favorite episode on social networks via Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram. Remember to use the hashtag TheCandidFrame. You can support us financially by contributing via PayPal or Patreon. I'll be leading a street photography workshop in Los Angeles through the Los Angeles Center of Photography soon. And if you're in the area, please consider signing up by visiting lacphoto.org or click on the link in the show notes or the website. We've relaunched our newsletter if you want to receive updates on everything related to TCF and book recommendations and announcements for special events and workshops from us and some of our guests. Please sign up by visiting our website. And if you can't find every show episode on whatever service you use to listen to podcasts, download the Candid Frame app. It's available for Apple iOS and Android. And because of your generosity, it's free to download and use. No additional purchases are required. The Candid Frame's audio engineer is Martin Taylor. You can find at the other martintaylor.com. The show's senior producer is Cynthia Parker. And this is Ibarian X, and this is The Candid Frame. <laughs>